Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For although I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Mark Dever is a pastor in Washington, D.C. He's written a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I really enjoyed that book. And uh, the book actually begs an important question. What is the measuring stick for church health? What does it mean to be a part of a healthy ministry? What does it mean to be a part of a healthy church? What does your own participation in the work of God look like when it's healthy? You know, in the church today, as you might imagine, there are all kinds of different answers to that question. And uh, however, I think that the passages like the one we just read here from the Apostle Paul give us some insight into how God views that question. How does God view healthy, Christ-centered gospel ministry, both in the context of a local church like this one and in the context of your own individual lives? Uh, Paul writes here about just that, about a healthy, Christ-centered ministry as he recounts his own ministry to these Colossian Christians who lived 2,000 years ago and yet in so many ways are just like us. Having laid out his prayer for the Colossians, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and then reached these great heights of what we saw last week in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, in which Paul wrote to them about Jesus, now Paul shifts gears in this letter to write about his own calling as an apostle as a man dedicated to speaking to people about the message of Jesus Christ. And so this is one of multiple passages in the New Testament where we read about Paul recounting his own life's work. It's almost biographical for us, and for Paul it was autobiographical. And uh, as we read about this, we learn about the nature of his ministry. And in passages like this, it's sometimes hard for us to apply them to our own lives because we're not apostles, and most of you aren't ordained ministers at all. So we're going to have sort of ongoing twin applications in this sermon. One thing you can learn from chapters like this and verses like this is about the nature and practice and goals of formal, ordained Christian ministry. 
So put more simply, these verses can help you know what a pastor should be doing, (laughs) what a church should be about, what Christ-centered ministry is. That's one piece of application. And another piece of this twin application trail is more general. These verses aren't just relevant to pastors and to preachers. They're relevant to all of us in our various capacities as servants. In fact, the word Paul uses of himself in verse 25 is the word servant, not minister. The bottom line is God has called all of you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to minister to other people, to serve others. This happens in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our vocations, and in our churches. So this morning, I want us not just to consider, hey, what does this chapter tell me about formal ministry, but also... What does this tell me about my particular ministry, about the way I can serve the Lord? So I want to show you five things, don't freak out, five points, five things this morning about ministry from these verses, the basis of ministry, the content of ministry, the struggle of ministry, the goal and the warning of ministry. So first, let me show you the basis of ministry. Look in verse 25. There Paul says, that he became a minister, excuse me, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. That's another way of Paul saying that he was called by God to his particular ministry. It was given to him by God. You could say that the apostleship chose Paul. (laughs) Paul didn't choose the apostleship. So the basis of Paul's ministry and the basis of all ministry is the call of God on his life. That's not unique to Paul. That's not unique to apostles. That's not even unique to pastors today. It's true of every one of you this morning if you're a Christian. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been called to ministry. You've been called to the service of God and others in the name of Jesus. This idea of calling is important. Every Christian is called to full-time service. My grandfather, when he was alive, carried a card with him all the time in his wallet. And I remember he would regularly pull it out when he met people or introduced himself to people. And the card said, Gerald Evans, and then right underneath it said, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That stuck with me for years because my grandfather understood that even though he spent his life working in non-ordained ministry, he saw himself first and foremost as a servant, a minister of Jesus. Paul tells us elsewhere, Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. To live as Christ or to use Jesus's language. It's not enough just to be willing to give your life over to Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die. Every Christian must be able to take up Jesus's cross and follow him. So there's no varsity and junior varsity levels of Christian service. If you have the spirit of Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have been gifted to serve and to minister. You've been called by God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, the body, the church, does not consist of one member, but of many. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. You know, I love this about Christianity. Everyone who follows Jesus is important 
Everyone is essential. Everyone is needed. From the greatest preacher with global influence to the unknown Christian woman in the persecuted church in China who humbly cares for her neighbors, all of us are needed, valued, and important because all of us are used by God. All of us are called to various forms of ministry or service. What is it for you? That's a great question for you to consider. How might you find the answer? Well, you can ask those who know you well. What gifts do you see in me that I can use for service of others? You can think about what you enjoy doing, what you're good at doing, and what opportunities there are for you. That's, that matrix is a way for you to learn how you are to serve. But make no mistake, the Christian life is not divided between professionals and amateurs. We are all called by God to minister and serve. That's the basis of ministry. Secondly, we see the content. The content of ministry, verses 25 through 28. Look what Paul says in verse 26. He basically says his job description is to make the word of God fully known. Another way to translate that is to present the word of God in its fullness. Remember in verse 6 of chapter 1, we saw that the gospel is something that grows. The gospel is something that bears fruit. Romans chapter 1 says that the gospel is a power. And so the job of gospel ministry, and in particular, the job of the preacher, is to unleash the power of the gospel. One of my pastors in college used to use the illustration that the scriptures and the gospel are like a lion. They're like a lion. A lion, I don't know if you knew this, does not need you to defend it. All you need to do is uncage the lion. And it can defend itself. That's what the gospel's like. The job of the minister of the gospel, Paul says here, is to uncage the lion. He goes into more detail next about what it precisely means by the word of God. He says, verse 27 and 26, it's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, now fully revealed to the saints, Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he concludes verse 28 by saying, him we proclaim, him we proclaim. Paul saw his ministry as being centered on the proclamation of a person, Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. The mystery he writes about that has now been revealed is that God in Jesus is now going to save Gentiles and Jews alike through uniting them in faith to Jesus Christ so that the power of Jesus's death and resurrection applies to them as well. And this means, as Paul labors all the time to say, that there is now one people of God made of both Jews and Gentiles together united in Jesus. And it means that Jesus is the center. Jesus is the content of Paul's ministry. He is the warp and the woof of it. He's the sum of all the parts. He's the reason for it all. We saw last week that Jesus is the center of the universe. 
That Jesus is the head of his church. And we see this week that Jesus Christ and the proclamation of what he has done should be the centerpiece of all Christian ministry. Paul is passionate about that. The scriptures speak of that all the time. And so let me just tell you why that is important. Why is it important that the content of ministry be Christ in you, the hope of glory? Let me tell you why. Only the message of the gospel has real power to change people and to rescue people. Only trusting in Jesus changes your identity from an enemy of God to a child of God, beloved by your Father. Only trusting in Jesus, believing in his death for your sin and his resurrection, rescues someone from hell. Only trusting in Jesus and experiencing his forgiveness of sins allows you to grow and bear fruit, as Paul talked about earlier. So the stakes, friends, the stakes are high. In our lives, heaven and hell, we really believe in these things. They're on the line here. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we want as many people as possible to know the way offered in Jesus. Jesus must be the content of ministry because Jesus is the power behind ministry. I can't resist at this point saying that these verses are a great summary of why Christ church exists. Him we proclaim. The way we have phrased that since the very first day is that the gospel changes everything. If Jesus is enough, if in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, chapter 2, verse 3, then he should be the sum and center of our ministry together. And our church has a deep and abiding conviction that what you most need, what you most need, no matter who you are this morning, no matter what's happened to you this week, no matter your own religious background, what you most need is not more spiritual techniques. It's not more moralistic, therapeutic training and teaching. It's not more inculcation into the evangelical sub-churchy culture that has harmed so many. What you most need, no matter who you are, is to comprehend and believe with all the saints what Paul says in Ephesians 3, the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Listen, San Antonio has more than enough churchiness. We want to give people the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Have you ever experienced, have you personally experienced the hope of glory found in Jesus? Have you been transformed by Jesus Christ? People all over the place in our city grow up in and around church and can answer questions about the Bible and questions about theology, but they've never met the resurrected Messiah like Paul did on the road to Damascus. Have you met him? C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes, compares knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus to the difference between looking at a map of the English countryside and thinking that because you've looked at a map of the English countryside, you've experienced what it's like to walk in the English countryside. Some of you have been around Christianity for so long that you've stared at the map 
but never really gotten out of the car and started walking with Jesus in his death and resurrection's power. Until you've experienced that, you can't experience the change the gospel brings and you can't experience the power of gospel ministry. Paul tells us the basis of God's ministry is his call. The content is Jesus, Christ in you. Third, the struggle. Let's go in reverse order here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. That word struggle is the word agona, from which we get our word agonize. I agonize for you, he says. Verse 29 of chapter 1. For this ministry, I toil. That word means he exerts physical, spiritual, and mental energy. Verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul's sufferings are redemptive in any way or that Christ's redemption is lacking in any way. What he means is that through his union with Jesus, through his connection to who Jesus is, and through his suffering, like Jesus suffered, the spiritual solidarity that exists between Jesus and Paul and anyone who connects with Christ is somehow mysteriously strengthened. Here's the bottom line. Serving others and ministering to others Here's the good news, good news part. It's going to cause suffering. Welcome to Christ Church. It's going to be a struggle to serve others and minister to others. There's little that is clearer in the teaching of the New Testament that followers of Jesus will experience struggle. And in our labors and efforts to obey Jesus and live out the gospel in service and in ministry, that struggle is intensely felt. Look at what Paul says, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings. Can we be honest? Isn't that annoying? That annoys me. Every time I read that, I'm like, come on. Who rejoices in suffering? Paul says this repeatedly. How can he rejoice in suffering? You know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably seen these people who try to mimic this, but in really sort of unhelpful ways. I got hit by a car this week. Praise God, it wasn't a truck. And you're like, come on, man. This is terrible. This is a bad thing that's happening here. You know, I don't think Paul's rejoicing in sufferings themselves. That's an important qualifier. Suffering is not good. Suffering is not good. It's bad. But he is rejoicing in what can only be gained by suffering. A deeper appreciation and love for God himself. Listen to Martin Luther. Here's what Luther writes. It is God's nature to make something out of nothing. Hence, one who is not yet nothing, out of him God cannot make anything. Therefore, God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life only to the dead, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to the unwise. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched. So Paul can rejoice in the middle of suffering and struggle because he has a deep conviction that the suffering is not evidence of his God-forsakenness. And if you're a Christian, your suffering is not evidence of your God-forsakenness, but rather it's in suffering that God draws near. He is near to the brokenhearted. Can you see your suffering in that light? 
maybe even get to the point where you can say, I rejoice in this trial because I know that without it, I could never experience the fullness of what God offers me through his Holy Spirit. Honestly, that's only really possible. It's only really possible for you to begin to get to that place when you know that Jesus has also suffered. Jesus has struggled in ministry for you. Again, Luther wrote, Christians cannot suffer with Christ before they have embraced the full benefits of Christ's suffering for them in their place. Paul suffers and struggles in his apostolic ministry to the Colossians, setting an example for our own ministries. And then he tells us, fourthly, the goal. The goal of ministry, verse 2, chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Can we just take a minute and focus on the first thing he says there? The first goal that Paul lists is that we may love that we may love one another, that we may be knit together in love and encourage each other's hearts. That is the intended fruit or goal of our ministry towards one another and service for one another. That's one of the most important biblical measuring sticks for a healthy ministry. Are people loving one another well? Are they being knit more fully together? I love that image. And as I thought about it this week, the word that kept coming to my mind is friendship. Friendship. That's what Paul's describing here. Gospel friendship. And as you know, I imagine sometimes in our efforts and desire to pursue what's being discussed here, we can make it really complicated. Grand strategies for community and intimacy. Can we just state it simply? Gospel ministry should result in gospel friendships. People who are friends. What does that look like? People who are patient with one another, giving each other a break, laughing together often, relationships where there's not always a ton at stake, where you're free to ponder out loud, you're free to head in the wrong direction for a little while and explore because love sustains the relationship. A guy who wrote a book who's a pastor in Virginia named Wynn Collier, he's an Anglican pastor, and his book is called Love Big, Be Well. And he's writing about his church, and he describes this group of people at his church that call themselves the Order of the Roasted Bean. The Order of the Roasted Bean. They get together for coffee, Three or four times a week, a group of five people, and they've been doing this three or four times a week for 32 years. For 32 years. And he writes of them this. For 32 years now, that group of friends has shared their coffee, shared their news, celebrated retirements, graduations, and grandkids. They've stood beside one another at funerals and during sickness and divorce. They've showed up morning after morning through all the tedious rigors that fill our lives. That's the goal of ministry. The goal of ministry is love, caring for one another, being together through all the ups and downs of this life, believing that Jesus is there in our togetherness, and so we can be there for the other as well. That's the goal. Lastly, the warning. The warning of ministry. Look in verse 4. I say this in order 
that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What does that mean? Here's what Paul says. We're going to get more into this next week. Don't get derailed. Don't get derailed. Don't get deluded by plausible arguments. And the idea here, the idea here is that there will always be new things that come along that are going to vie for our primary affection, attention, and allegiance. There will always be new fads and new concepts and new teachings and new causes and new passions that aren't necessarily bad, but become problematic when they are made central. There will be impressive speakers with logical arguments. There will be captivating leaders with important causes. But nothing, nothing should divert your aim from Christ-centered ministry, from uncaging the lion, from unleashing the power of the gospel. Listen, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I see and the more I am convinced that one of the main inhibitors to healthy ministry in our lives And in our churches is when we get sidetracked from what is most important. When we fail to keep the main thing, the main thing. We've seen that this is a problem for the Colossians and it will be a temptation until Jesus Christ returns. So Paul says to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, stay the course. Don't have mission drift. Keep the faith. Remember Aladdin? The movie, uh, Early in the movie, when Aladdin goes into the Cave of Wonders to uh, find the genie's lamp with his monkey. What's his monkey's name? Thank you. Abu. I knew there would be an answer there. Abu is the monkey's name. And they go into the cave. And what's in the cave? There is just treasure everywhere. More money than anyone could ever know what to do with. Jewels and gold and diamonds and all things that are glittering and beautiful. But Aladdin is after one thing. Central and primary in his vision is the lamp. The lamp is what he must keep his eye on. Abu, the monkey, loses sight of the lamp and tries to steal something almost to their death, right? When the cave of wonders starts exploding. I'm not going to give it away, but if you haven't seen Aladdin, I mean, come on. No spoiler alerts for Aladdin. Um, We should all be like that in the way we pursue Jesus. Together as a church and individually as Christians, don't get distracted by things that are shimmering and glittering, but only divert us from what is most important. Are you being diverted? Do you need a course correction? It's worth asking yourself, am I on course? Do I see Jesus as enough? Do I see in him all treasures of wisdom and knowledge? All that I could possibly ever want or need is found in Christ. As we've sung already this morning, Christ is enough. He is our reward and all of our devotion. Here we have an overview, friends, of Christ-centered ministry. And it's been my prayer this week, and I hope it will be your prayer today, that our lives in our church, by the power of the Spirit, may more and more reflect what Paul says here he longs to see in his own life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.